Hello and welcome to the Have We Got Planning News For You podcast series. My name is Charlie Banner and I'm a member of the panel of the show, which is made up of five senior barristers who specialise in planning law, who came together at the start of lockdown last year to inform, entertain and most importantly help raise money for charity. We've never charged the show, but we've always encouraged viewers to make a donation, either to the NHS Combined Charities page or other charities such as Shelter or Local Charity of your choice. You'll find details on our website. Enjoy the podcast. Uh, uh, even extending permissions and allowing permissions to be extended. For my my money, just abolish Section 73, Subsection 5, which never worked. It's never been a clever idea uh, and would allow uh, authorities to grant Section 73 to extend the life of consent in the way they were doing before 2006. And for reasons that I simply don't understand, uh, that the then government thought it was a good idea to get rid of that power. Um, there's been a number of uh, letters that have been sent in to the minister. His inbox must be quite high now from such august bodies as the City of London Law Society, uh, Planning and Environmental uh, Law Committee, uh, the London Property Alliance, all f- suggesting that we bring forward uh, 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 reforms to try and get us through this emergency period of time. The one thing that I would want to flag up is SIL and the desirability of somehow bringing some sort of relaxation with regards to the payments of SIL and phasing uh, payments. Uh, still at the moment is horribly inflexible and there's a desperate need for that to happen. The courts, the courts have been flexible. I've had the experience of a, a, a section 288 administrative court challenge that was heard by telephone three weeks ago. The decision came through yesterday. The order was made yesterday and I came second. Disappointing, <laughs> I have to say, but could have been worse. Uh, the, the point is that the courts worked and we did it all remotely because there was a will there. The planning inspectorate, uh, have been bombarded with requests to re- to resurrect the appeal system in terms of hearings and inquiries. Uh, we're told that there will be pilots next month uh, under pressure from our professional organisation, PIBA, uh, and PINs are reporting in CMCs that they will be bringing that all forward. It's fair to say it's disappointingly slow, uh, and I hope that we all will see some progress uh, with, with that. And then one final thing that's caught my eye, Charlie, is uh, ONS, God bless them, her mm. Well, they should, should be thanked for publishing the controversial 2018 household projections during this difficult time because it creates the promise of many happy hours at examination, arguing what the figures are going to be again. Many happy hours at Section 78. And gratefully, they're utterly hopeless, it would seem, and therefore providing work for the planning bar. So thank you to ONS from that. Thanks, Paul. Any comments to the panel? Mary, what's your take on, on all this? I think they're all great points and the, uh, I think um, on a more serious note there are two really important things which I think government is really thinking and grappling, trying to grapple with at the moment and I would urge anybody with examples of the difficulties that these issues are causing you to make sure that you uh, advance those examples whether it's to your local HBF uh, representative or whether it's to the British Property Federation I think government is in listening mode and they particularly want to hear from you if you have issues with relation to SIL and uh, mothballing sites. And if you're you're able to mothball a site, well, then you're a lot luckier than those who are already on site. 
making payments, receiving notices, and who can't, um, on the face of it, um, escape that liability. The other thing that they're really seriously looking at is at the expiry of planning permissions and the whole question of implementation, which has become extraordinarily difficult. Um, so again, if you've got examples that you can um, draw you, to government's attention, I would urge you to do that because, as I say, they're in listening mode. Thanks, Mary. Got a few questions coming in the Q and A. Um, Simon Knight from Waits asks, "Is that my typical wardrobe?" Well, Simon, um, no, it's not. Uh, this is what happens when you don't get any ironing done for three weeks. You have to look at what's <laughs> if if we'd uh, if we'd been two days later, we would have been to see even more extreme attire. Tell you. So let's hope I get uh, some some ironing done before this time next week. Uh, Robert Fort from Gerald Eve, you've asked uh, if bringing back Section One Hundred Six BA is a good idea. Um, really harking back. Um, well, in my view, yes, it is. Uh, there'll be a bit of a tension perhaps the direction of travel um, from government and RICS in terms of viability assessments so the, I'm not sure it's, it's likely to happen uh, but obviously that was the solution last time we were in a, a profound crisis and things slowed down um, be interested to see whether that kind of idea is, is progressed um, well without further ado let's move on to um, planning uh, court casework um, Mary what's been going on in the planning court recently well, I've, the case I've singled out is a case called Adverse, and this is a story about a High Court challenge uh, to the grant of an outline planning commission, uh, which was issued in May 2019, following a November 2017 resolution to grant. And it's rather more than the usual story about uh, an uh, inadequate officer report unwittingly causing delay to the delivery of housing through uh, allowing in a planning challenge. This concerned an allocated site and that's very important because it was very significant to the final result. The court found that the first round of the challenge was made out and that was that the report, the officer report, significantly misled councillors on a material matter. You will all recall that that is a a key uh, ground and in this case the officer report failed to meet what the court described as the bare minimum standard by ina inadequately grappling with uh, and addressing what was then in the MPPF 12 paragraph 134 you'll know now that that's 196 the key knees amongst you and that de deals with where a development causes less than substantial harm to the significance of a designated heritage asset that harm has to be weighed against the public benefit of any proposal and the court found that the officer's report should have explained the extent of the harm and they should have weighed that harm against the public benefit and that the uh, failure to do so um, was a material was materially misleading and so that ground was made out and a similar criticism was also made in respect of uh, a listed building um, under section 66 however as some of you may well recall the court retains a discretion uh, under section 32 of the senior courts act not to quash decisions if it appears that the outcome of the decision from the applicant's point of view would have been the same. So having succeeded on the face of it on ground one, it must have been something of a bitter blow to the applicant that the judge actually found that absent the flawed officer's report, the councillors would have reached exactly the same conclusion and therefore refused to allow relief. 
And interestingly, the judge relied very largely on the fact that this was an allocated site and that at the time of the local plan examination, the examination inspector had clearly himself had to weigh the benefits against the identified less than substantial harm to the very same heritage assets and had clearly found that the public benefits outweighed the harm. So on that basis, the court declined to quash the permission. So I think that's a very interesting and slightly unusual case where the ground was made out, but the court didn't quash. And the other thing to say is that there was a second ground, and this was about a, 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 an alleged difference between the policy approach in the MPPF 2012 to major development in the AOMB versus the policy approach in the later 2018 and 2019 MPPFs. Now that background failed, but one of the interesting things the judge said in relation to that issue was that the uh, decision maker, both at the uh, stage, the local plan stage, the outline application stage, and the finally the looking to the future, the reserve matters stage, would need to consider the development against the major development tests at each stage and that therefore the matter would need to be looked at again in terms of moderating any harm to the AOMB at the reserve matters stage. So I think that just, to, just to, is an interesting reminder that actually whether it's designated heritage assets or in this case the AOMB, um, you need to look at those issues at the local plan examination stage, then again at an outline stage or a detailed application stage slash reserve matters stage. So, um, interesting. Thanks, Mary. I mean, arguably generous uh, in terms of the judge's approach to discretion, having found there was no of law. Um, Chris, uh, what do you make of it? Yeah, I mean, I think it was uh, very generous uh, by the judge, but it's all well reasoned and he's explained that. Um, I think that really, here we see it again with an officer's report not handling the heritage issue well. And if ever there's an area where the council should ask the um, legal team, the solicitor in the council, or maybe going to external advice, it is on this heritage issue. So what, what the judge said at paragraph 20 was that the officer really hadn't assessed the significance of the conservation area or the impact of the um, uh, significance on the conservation area. And, and that, even though they tried really hard to say it was in the report, the judge was having none of it. But, you know, in, fair, in fairness to Christopher Kitkowski, or Kit Kat, as we sometimes know him, uh, he did a fantastic job in persuading the judge to look beyond the report. And as Mary said, look at the wider context. That really is skilled advocacy, I think, on his part. Yeah. And also, it does flag up, we're often asked the question about the role of interested parties in 288s and JRs, and I think it provides a pretty emphatic answer that sometimes they can play a seminal role in the outcome of such proceedings. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Thanks, Sasha. Um, got a few more uh, comments coming in through the questions. Um, some comments about pins, we're going to come on to them a little bit later. Um, and uh, Jonathan Easton has very generously offered to uh, lend some hair clippers to Chris and me, which is to say, Chris and I have a deal uh, of betting places to whether I can morph into John Bon Jovi more quickly than he can morph into Ole Gunnar Solskjaer. I think it's probably about a score draw at the moment, hair-wise. Uh, <laughs> we'll have an update on that, uh, that one next week. 
So we're moving from the planning court to the planning inspectorate and, uh, and MHCLG appeal decisions. There's been quite a few big, big decisions in um, the last few days, including uh, one that's come out today, which we'll probably talk about next week. Um, but uh, the one we're going to uh, discuss uh, now is, is the Seashell Trust Greenbelt uh, uh, case, where the Secretary of State found there were very special circumstances. Um, Paul acted for the successful um, appellant in this one, so there's absolutely no way we're going to let Paul lead on this and wallow in his own story. Uh, so we're going to chuck that one over to Chris and tell us a bit more about that case. Okay, well, this, yeah, yeah, Paul is pleased, obviously. This is a decision that came out yesterday, and that's why he's still smiling. Okay, <laughs> and we'll be all weekend. But the point is, I've chosen this for appeal of the week because I think it's so significant about what the Secretary of State is thinking at the moment. We're, we're all having a few negative decisions from inspectors, but the Secretary of State has been on a very, very positive journey of the last couple of days. And I don't mean the journey to his house in Herefordshire and his parents <laughs> in Shropshire, obviously. I, I don't mean that. But I mean the journey he's on in granting lots and lots of planning permissions. It's incredibly encouraging. And just to set this case in context, just cast your mind back to November last year and a decision in uh, Burley and Wharfdale in Bradford. And in that case, a positive recommendation for 500 houses in the Greenbelt because Bradford weren't getting on with their plan. And the Secretary of State firmly rejects it and says, no, I'm not granting planning permission. Just bring it forward six months to where we are now. And what do you see? You see the Secretary of State taking a positive recommendation in Paul's case and granting planning permission for, wait for it, 325 houses in the Greenbelt. Now, it was also for the redevelopment of a school site, but those houses in the Greenbelt were on undeveloped open land. And what's really interesting is that the inspector acknowledges the harm is significant. He acknowledges it's inappropriate development. Obviously, I'm sure Paul just had to accept that uh, inevitably, but, but he finds harm to openness um, and he finds significant encroachment, the inspector, into the countryside, um, which uh, was obvious really for that scale of development. And yet when it came to it, the Secretary of State, uh, following the inspector's lead, granted planning permission. Now what's really interesting is to look at the very special circumstances that got Paul's client over the line. They're a charity and they um, were redeveloping a school for children with special needs, multiple and complex um, needs. And obviously, you know, that is going to be a very positive aspect, but that doesn't really justify all those houses. And indeed, Paul's clients didn't want to deliver the 50% uh, affordable housing that the core strategy required. Um, and in the very special circumstances that the Secretary of State accepted, he places very significant weight on the affordable housing offer, even though it's below a policy level. Um, the inspector deals with it in a sophisticated way. He says that the policy is out of date. It's from the core strategy and the core strategy hadn't been subject to viability testing as required. Now, the core strategy was from 2011. Uh, this is in um, Stockport, by the way. Uh, I should have perhaps mentioned that at the start. For those in uh, London, that's near Manchester. Um, and it is... Oi, oi, oi. Yeah, I didn't think I'd get away with that. Um, and the reality is that even though it's below the policy level, very significant weight. And then the council's supply was a maximum of 2.8 years. So 
nearly half what it should be. This is mirrored all around Manchester because they haven't made progress with their uh, spatial um, framework plan and as a con the Greater Manchester Spatial Framework, and as a consequence, nearly all the authorities around Manchester don't have a healthy supply. But if they're in the green belt, they've probably been sitting back and thinking, well, you know, appellants, developers, do your worst. Um, well, here, an appellant has one in the green belt. And again, the Secretary of State gives very significant weight to that, um, to that uh, housing need case. So the housing need case was a major part of the very special circumstance case. And well done to Paul, ably assisted by Giles Cannett. The case has taken so long that Giles now has to be recorded as a silk, uh, uh, even though he wasn't at the start of the process, and um, Anthony Gill as well. A great, great result. Shall we let him comment on his own victory? Go on then. Go on. Yeah, just to add a note of seriousness, um, th this is a, a failure of the development plan system, more importantly. Um, Stockport's core strategy was 2011. At that stage, the Seashell Trust was transforming from what was then the Manchester School of the Deaf through to what's now a school dealing with really the most seriously, the most vulnerable children in our society in terms of their, their level of disability, dealt with through the charitable sector rather than the state sector, curiously. Um, but there was a desperate need for this redevelopment to bring the school forward. And they, they're just solely based upon charitable functions. They went through the process of plan, pro, plan preparation. They objected. They sought to get it in the... Uh, local plan that went nowhere in Stockport. They got an allocation in the draft GMSF. Then they wait another year and get another allocation in the next version of the draft GMSF. Um, no doubt they'll get an allocation in the next version of the draft GMSF. But if we had a development plan system that was fit for purpose, this site would have been allocated years and years ago. As, as it was, a charity that does some of the most extraordinary work that I've ever seen in, in, in uh, my life uh, had to go through the, the joy and fun of a six-week inquiry uh, spending time criticising um, the, the case being run by the council and ultimately succeeding and sitting there for a four-year process uh, to get their consent. What I would say, though, and I, I'd stress for anybody to read, I think it's paragraph 596 onward of the decision, is it's a real triumph for the forensic uh, process because we won from testing the evidence that was being thrown against us and the, our evidence withstood that test and we were able to demonstrate the flaws in the council's case. It demonstrates why inquiries work. Can I say yeah. something about what Chris said, Charlie? Yeah, go for it. What, what, what Chris said about the current Secretary of State, I think is arguably proportionally the most pro-housing that we've had for a very, very long time. And Chris, not only this decision, but we know from Long Melford last week, we're in a climate where actually, do you remember that we all remember the days when clients feared call-ins? But from a developer's point of view, call-in now almost is a, is a likelihood of getting consent in the current climate, which will probably only get stronger with the COVID-19 consequences. So we should all know we have a very pro-development Secretary of State currently based on the decisions he's granting. Yeah. So big, so big is beautiful. Absolutely. Oh, well, well, often it's basically be a C, isn't it, that the larger the development, the greater the very special circumstances case is. I, I had no involvement in this case, but um, I, I felt by... by um, I, I did an inquiry the week before you started it, Paul, against Giles Cannock, uh, where I was calling Nick Lee. I see actually on the list of people, both of them are there. So hello to both of you. And um, I think they were both uh, seeing the inquiry that, that we were doing that week as a, as a sort of 
warm-up for the, the big event the following week. And it's actually reminded me that um, Nick and I won the pub quiz in, in the local pub in Buxton where we did that inquiry. And I, somewhere in this room, I've still got the voucher for £20 of free beer in, in the local pub in Buxton. So whenever I go back... Um, Just on Giles' behalf, Charlie, what was the result in that case? Um, I asked Giles. <laughs> <laughs> I came second, close second. <laughs> um, let's move on. And... Um, uh, we've got, actually, before we do, I just wanted to, before we move on to LPA decisions, there's one further um, planning appeal I just wanted to touch upon briefly, which was a, a, a appeal decision by Christina Downs um, in Wokingham, uh, where um, she knocked off some of the five-year supply due to concerns of the delay that um, COVID-19 crisis we're all currently going through could have on the delivery of housing. Um, wasn't a, didn't seem to be a central feature of her decision, but she knocked off an element of supply. And I think that's likely to be the first of a number of cases yeah. where that issue is developed. I mean, it seems to me that um, it's at least questionable whether it, it should be knocked off a five-year supply that's measured from a base date of April 2019, because um, I've always taken the view that in that situation, you're, you're, the question is, was that site deliverable as of the base date? And though it may be permissible to take into account evidence after the base date to answer that question the question is still always was it deliverable as of the 1st of April 2019 when and as of that date Covid was still a problem for bats um, but plainly it's a material consideration plainly it'll be relevant to subsequent years and um, it's going to be interesting to see what local authorities do did they develop action plans mm. to deal with this um, there's a glimmer of hope on LinkedIn today from the LPDF indicating that um, some developers are starting to reopen or consider reopening their old sites but there clearly has been a a period of delay and i think that's likely to be a topical issue going forward um, charlie can i say i think next week we should debate it's worth debating the question of will covid19 have an effect of reducing requirements yes or yes. will it have the effect of increasing requirements well, inc well not changing the mm. equation whether the government will take a hawkish or dovish approach to housing Absolutely. land supply and delivery and i, I personally think we should discuss that next week and, and it's also the case, isn't it, that um, local authorities will, who, who already now have to pay a greater attention to demonstrating uh, deliverability, will have to factor in COVID-19. And those that don't uh, will, will be exposing their underbellies a bit to the likes of us lot. Mm. Indeed. I think the critical thing is not only to, to deal with it head on, but to be seen to deal with it head on. So to have some kind of strategy in place that you can wave before the inspectors going, we're actually dealing uh, with this. But no, Sasha, I completely uh, agree. And it's interesting that only this afternoon, Planning Magazine Online was reporting that South Oxfordshire have written to the Secretary of State asking for a relaxation of, of their housing and supply requirement. Uh, not so much the, the requirement figure, but the requirement for a five-year housing and supply due to the pressures of COVID. And it's very well, interesting. Can I, Charlie, can I say, as a ratepayer in South Oxfordshire, I don't want. I know you, Chris, and me have all made a good living in the past three years uh, because of South Oxfordshire's problems with HLS. But I speak <laughs> as a ratepayer, and I hope they rectify the situation soon. <laughs> Guy Wakefield is on this. Uh, I can see. Well, there, I'm, I'm very popular in your neighbourhood in Chinner, in particular, Sasha. With um, let's move on to local authority decisions and um, uh, a brief discussion on, on what's been coming forward at local authority level. And Sasha, um, you're going to um, help us with that. Well, I am because I, I think we've all reflected on this, both whatever perspective we have, whether we work for LPAs or the development industry. And we've one of the interesting things from our perspective has been how different authorities have reacted to the unprecedented events of the past seven, eight weeks. 
And it is noteworthy how some authorities are still wrestling with decisions. Others are being more pro proactive. And I thought worth a particular mention was Wolf and Forrest, who quite early on, on the 2nd of April, determined a very large scheme of 750 units. And they determined it in a manner which I think is almost certainly lawful, which were having the councillors de um, dealing with safeguarding distances and having officers come through in the same way we're speaking today through video conferencing. And in that case, they were able to determine a very, very large application in the current context with, without a hitch. They didn't face the problems of South Somerset. And I, I commend Wolf and Forest for taking on with bravery pretty early on in the lockdown a decision of that magnitude and granting consent in a pretty quick time. To be fair to say, mm -hmm. it wasn't just them, but the, I think with one of the ministers in Wales got into trouble um, on Zoom yesterday, didn't he, for um, speaking in somewhat forthright terms about the quality of one of his questions. Um, mm -hmm. Paul, what's your take on, uh, on the Waltham Forest example and other local authority activities in recent days? Yeah, I think it's remarkable how quickly a change in the legislation results in a change in culture. I uh, appreciate authorities are struggling for a whole host of reasons. Staff have been taken uh, off uh, planning and put onto other areas that we, of course, commend. Um, so it's remarkable that there are a number of authorities that are putting their head above the parapet and recognising that planning is still key to the economic and social well-being of the area, and therefore it needs to get the requisite priority. I also would say um, fair play to the very many councillors who are no doubt grappling with the technology in the way that we have for the last two or three weeks in a way that may be rather more uncomfortable to um, uh, your average uh, Shire-born councillor. Um, so I, I think that there, there are many things to, that uh, need to pass on the back. Um, there are, as South Somerset has demonstrated, uh, still some teething problems with that. So far in this I call, agree. <laughs> Mary, did you want to add something there? Yeah, no, I agree. I, I mean, as we speak, my local council, Wandsworth, is having a virtual meeting right now. And um, one of our projects has, has just, uh, they've resolved to grant a planning consent. So, you know, I salute um, the councils that are getting on with it. And even those Absolutely. who have not yet um, commenced having virtual meetings are all grappling with uh, how they want to conduct themselves in the future. Uh, should they have some councillors actually in situ? Should they have everybody at home? The schemes of delegation are all getting a dust down. Uh, the, the sort of management is, uh, uh, options are all being revisited. And I, I actually think there will be some long-lasting benefits as a result of the new technology that we are uh, all experiencing and using more, um, even though it, you know, it does seem that some are quicker than others. How many Zoom shares did you buy last week, Mary? <laughs> <laughs> I, I would just throw, throw in though, though Mary, um, it's, it's, it's absolutely right to, to commend planning committees, but with planning committees we're probably dealing with uh, a dozen, dozen and a half people that are involved in them. What's going to prove difficult and, and perhaps needs a bit more thought uh, from government, again whilst they're in legislating mood, is how you deal with full council meetings. For the development plan process to come forward they tend to be policy, that yeah. requires a full council. Um, uh, and all of those that all of us that have stood in front of a full council, imagine the the dozens and dozens and dozens of people in different locations and how you marshal that. Certainly, mm -hmm. that needs some thought because what would be really unfortunate is if all that gets pushed off until such time as this um, this business is over. Mm. Indeed, and I'm sure, I'm sure. I mean, also if you just think about every year, councils have to have very important meetings, um, finance meetings. Yeah. Um, uh, so, so I'm sure these things will um, be looked at. 
absolutely. Um, let's let's move on to um, praise of the week. Um, and uh, Paul, it links in quite well with what we've been discussing, really, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah it, it does. Um, so those of us that act uh, for the development industry as well as the local uh, planning authority uh, side of things, public and private sector, um, sometimes it's it's all too easy to focus upon where you're being critical of councils. Um, and so uh, I noticed last week that six authorities were identified as being at risk of special measures uh, as a result of appeal failures. What that actually means is that everybody else isn't. Mm. Uh, and what it means when you drill down into the figures is that of uh, the 300 odd organisations with planning powers, 70% of, of major applications from those 300 organisations were dealt with within 13 weeks. And over 170 of those organisations dealt with 90% of their major applications within 13 weeks. Um, so when we often see these headlines about the planning systems not working, that's probably not entirely fair. Um, so that's the first one that I want to want to just jump up and down and say that probably deserves more of a pat on the back rather than the criticism we saw in the press. Um, and secondly, you know, praise the court system for operating properly in the, in the way that it has. Um, and as I said, shout out to all the public and private sector organisations and individuals, um, some of whom have been furloughed and therefore sitting on the sidelines frustratingly trying to get back into the world, but some of them trying desperately to keep us on the economic and social uh, uh, track. So shout out to all of them, frankly. Absolutely. Just on the issue of virtual um, uh, virtual planning committee hearings, uh, Ian Alcox asked a question, which I've a very, very good question, which I've heard uh, asked by others in recent past, which is, could a virtual process expose the local authority to a greater chance of JR? Um, well, subject to any issues with their constitution, which obviously yeah. if the constitution, the wording of it precludes in some shape or form uh, a, a virtual process, that needs to be looked at plainly before uh, they make a decision. Subject to that, um, my own view is I think the court's going to be pretty sanguine about this because um, fairness has to be looked at in the circumstances. That's very clear from the common law authorities. And the circumstances right now is that um, we have to engage in physical separation. And so therefore, all you can do is the best that you can and I mean a, a good way of litmus testing uh, a, a JR uh, complaining that a virtual process is unfair is that um, the planning court itself would be hearing that JR remotely um, because that's what it's doing. David, Mr. Justice David Holgate has just com completed uh, today a two-day very substantial planning court hearing and it worked, so I'm told, by one of the advocates in the case, Richard Turley, pretty well. Um, so uh, it's, it's not a promising start for somebody complaining that a remote process is unfair if they're having to complain about that to a planning court, which is itself operating remotely. David, Chris, well, on that regard. Well, I think, um, I mean, my view is that you have to look at the nature of the complaint. How likely is it who's, that somebody who complains will not have had the main part of their complaint or their objection dealt with by the process? So, you know, just because one individual doesn't have their complaints about highways dealt with doesn't mean it, you've got good grounds for judicial review, it will almost certainly have been taken into account. And I completely agree with you, Charlie, that the court will look at this in the circumstances we're in now, and there shouldn't be a nervousness about this. There should be real confidence because the government has legislated to let this process happen. Right. And that takes us quite nicely onto um, our next piece. And Sasha, plea of the week. Um, yes, a plea of the week. Uh, everybody on this webinar or not that you allow me to call it a webinar but everybody on obviously has an interest in probably the major cog in the planning system which is pins 
And I do want to make this plea of the week in the context of what all of us in our personal and professional lives have faced in the past eight weeks has been unlike anything we've faced before. So I give an enormous amount of latitude and understanding to PINs. But I think my plea of the week is a general recognition throughout the planning industry in the UK that we do need a bit more certainty and we need more certainty in the near future because what we've had are free pronouncements from PINs since the <laughs> lockdown. And I do think that it would be enormously helpful. And that is why it is a plea rather than a criticism, but a plea that the powers that be at PINs really do try as a matter of urgency to get out a timetable for determination of appeals and a process for determination of appeals that takes into account the interests of third parties, the development industry and local planning authorities in an incredibly timely manner. I think the whole planning system would be incredibly grateful to receive some certainty in that regard. I, mean, I echo that, Sasha, uh, and a couple of, I mean, it seems to me that um, clarity is the critical thing we need right now. We know PINs are piloting a limited number, I think it's no more than eight um, remote hearings and inquiries. I think that they're going to start in late May, give or take. Um, but what's not yet clear is what happens then? How long are they going to review that pilot? against what criteria and then are they going to roll things out wholesale after that or only in relation to some cases or other and over, over what period and so we're standing here and I had a, a video call with some developer clients yesterday I think some of them and the team are on this call now um, and, and we were looking at an appeal, putting an appeal in for something and they say well when's the when's the inquiry going to take place um, heaven knows, frankly, right now, because we don't know how long the backlog is. Plainly, it will be behind the queue um, that is increasing because all the stuff that's been adjourned in April, May, June. Um, and if we are allowed to meet in person, therefore, it's going to be behind the queue. If, if we are doing remote inquiries, are they going to be up and running wholesale by then? And so a little bit more clarity as to what's likely to happen and when and on what basis. And um, one other point, Charlie, I, I actually make the plea, frankly, on behalf of the inspectors, because all of us in our mm. communications this week, collectively, the five of us, have all got appeals at all sorts of stages and all forms of determination. The people who are really struggling, in my judgment, are the inspectors who are having to make subjective judgments on how to deal with particular appeals in particular circumstances. And they're coming up with understandably different solutions and different expectations and guidance as how the appeals will be determined. So I think that reinforces my point that a bit of clarity, certainty would be of enormous benefit. Uh, Mary, is that your experience as well? Well, I think, I think there's a lot of frustration for those of us who have got dates um, in May, in, in June, September. Uh, we don't know uh, where we stand. Are we going to get bumped off? And the people who lost, lost out last month, this month, are they going to get put, put in? It, you know, there needs to be some uh, more transparent, I think, management we all recognize that uh, i'm sure they're trying to do that their level best and you know i recognize that it's more complex for the planning inspectorate than it is for the courts the courts are by and large dealing with uh, uh, litigation between two main parties sometimes three whereas the inspectorate are dealing with cases which involves m potentially many more third parties so so i get that complexity but i still think the messaging uh, needs needs greater clarity because um, confidence in the system is key. Right, just, just there, because I've had experience of two, one which is in, going to be in May and one which is going to be in June, where there's such a difference 
The one in May, the inspector has largely decided to revert to a written procedure and then will consider after the evidence is exchanged the idea of having some hearings. I don't see, and having already decided to inquire, I don't see how reverting to a largely written procedure is advantageous over using technology like this, even if it isn't perfect. If you want engagement in the process, that's a Secretary of State case, then surely this is better than something that is, you know, it may not be 100% perfect, but it's obviously much better than just reverting to putting Secretary of State cases important as Paul's uh, has explained in his case, the value of cross-examination, just down to written reps. The other one, really interesting this morning, um, the council very positive um, in, in Lancashire, um, and they have already booked um, a venue for the inquiry, which can take 400 people. They're looking to have social distancing during the inquiry, and then looking to have a live stream for those who need to self-isolate. So a really positive attitude um, and really, really welcomed by the inspector, who I won't name, but it was great. Thanks, Chris. A couple of comments. Uh, I mean, Nick, Nick Lee, who mentioned earlier, he's, he's asked you, Chris, if you've taken all the Seashell Trust papers from Paul and put them in your office behind you and explain all, the, all of that, along with suppose, all the stuff behind me. But seriously, a serious question he raises was, um, how, how well would inquiries work uh, for difficult inquiries? How would, well would they work over? So my own view is plainly there's no substitute for being in person, um, but they can work. I and mean, I did a, a, a to test it out. Um, I had a sort of half planning, half competition case I did in the Chancery Division. Not an easy case. Two silks on each side uh, in January. Um, and we had still had the papers. So we did that with some colleagues of mine at Landmark and uh, with a law firm. We did that as a, as a mock remote hearing in front of Lord Carmouth, who just retired from the Supreme Court. And everybody involved, Lord Carmouth from the judge's perspective and all the other lawyers felt it worked all right. Uh, wasn't as perfect as in person, but as somebody who's now argued that case both in court and remotely, so have the experience of both, was anything really lost by doing that sort of case remotely? I'm not so sure it was. Um, somebody else has asked, um, will remote inquiries be used in future even when we're not res uh, restricted due to COVID? Um, it seems fairly likely that PINs are looking at ways of using tech but I don't think that it's going to be there as a replacement in person. It seems to me to be more of a of an enhancement, so something that would be used in addition. So, for example, if the, um, if you were a third party who couldn't attend an inquiry in person due to family commitments, work commitments, mobility issues, you might be able to participate remotely, which would mean that you you have a greater participation than now, but not at the expense of an in-person inquiry. It seems to me it would be a bolt-on. Um, can, I just pick, can I just pick up on that, uh, Charlie? I, 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 I agree with that, that we may see some innovative use of, of technology, which brings me back to the issue of the pilot schemes and what PINs are doing at the moment. I think initially, when we had first had lockdown, there was a fear that this was going to be indefinite. And the hope was that sooner rather than later, we could have, during the course of lockdown, hearings which were taking place, inquiries that were taking place to keep the system running during an indefinite period. We're now, I think, looking at, at a time when we won't just have the doors unlocked, but where we'll have a steady reduction in uh, the, the restrictions that we're living under. And what we, don't, what we need is not just a pilot scheme in terms of how to do it whilst we're all, all in this situation, but how we do it in Chris's situation. I had a CMC this morning with PINs where we said exactly the same thing, that we need to have an ability to look after witnesses who can't come because they're still um, uh, isolated. Uh, uh, people who may wish to come but are still isolated 
and therefore facilitating live video links, facilitating social distancing, uh, are practical things that uh, ought to be capable of being overcome. The issue is we should be working together, all parts of the industry, PINs, the authorities, uh, and the developers, and the uh, land promoters. Completely agree with Mary, you wanted to add something? Yeah, the other thing I was just going to say was, don't forget also, um, you know, local plan examinations. I mean, I personally think that um, this is going to go yeah. on for a while, that we are not going to suddenly um, return to, to where we were. I think there's going to be a, a social distancing of sorts for some time. And I'm, I'm sure it's right that there'll be a combination of, of measures going forward. But I think the other important thing um, is to make sure that the development plan system doesn't grind to a halt and to ensure that, yeah. again, uh, you, advantage is taken of both technology and also uh, oral hearings with uh, social distancing and a perhaps more limited number of parties being invited uh, so as to ensure that the local plan system continues. Absolutely. Same, same with neighbourhood plans. Our witching hour is approaching, so we're going to move on to our, our final topic. What's coming up in the next week? Uh, Mary, do you want to kick us, kick us off with um, your thoughts on, on what we might be addressing next week, what we might be seeing in the planning news in the next few days? Well, I'm interested now that Parliament's back and, uh, you know, again, uh, leading on, on the forefront of the use of, of technology. One of my uh, thoughts was what's happening to the Environment Bill? I mean, remember this. We had the uh, first and second readings in October last year, and then it got shelved uh, along with everything else on the 6th of November when Parliament was suspended. I mean, those are the days when we were all using the B word, Brexit. Whatever happened to that? Nice. You know, how life's changed. Wow. Um, but hey, I'm interested to, to see um, if the committees get going uh, in Parliament uh, and that bill continues to progress. Mm. So that's uh one thing couple of legal um, cases that um, may need discussion. The, um, at least a couple of you asked already on, on the Q&A about the Corbett and Cornwall um, case. That was a case where the Court of Appeal um, looked at the principle that you can comply with the development plan as a whole, even if the development has conflicts with individual policies. And I posted something on LinkedIn about that. Extraordinarily got something like 10,000 views, which rather indicates the importance of that principle. And in my view, a principle that's not actually applied as often as it should be by people on all sides. Uh, we may well have to look at that in a bit more detail uh, next time under the uh, court case of the week. Uh, the Heathrow um, a permission to appeal decision, I mean, not been a great time for, for airports and, and those in the aviation industry, but the Heathrow expansion uh, application permission to appeal to the Supreme Court is due imminently. The Supreme Court's started its new term this week. I wouldn't be surprised if we get a decision one way or other or on whether um, the issues about the Paris Agreement's relevance to the UK legal system uh, are going to be explored by the Supreme Court and then we'll know after that when the Supreme Court's substantive hearing is going to be. Um, Chris, any thoughts from you about issues that are likely to uh, be hot potatoes the next few days? Yeah, I think we're all waiting and we believe um, very shortly we're going to see the North Essex Authority's local plan uh, report uh, from the EIP. Um, that was, if you remember, a, a very large new settlement across three authorities that mm. Inspector, Inspector Roger Clues, was um, not impressed with the evidence supporting that. And yet we know government is hugely enthusiastic about new settlements. They want them to happen. Uh, but sometimes, you know, the evidence, uh, inspectors feel the evidence isn't there. We're expecting that report. The inspector gave them effectively a second chance and um, we'll be seeing whether he has accepted the um, 
the revised approach. Now, somebody spent three weeks in January promoting one of those communities. I'm hoping I'll have some bragging rights, as Paul did this week, on, on that one, if that goes well. There's obviously also something we'll need to discuss next week is St Albans. Um, obviously, the decision in relation to their plan came out today um, uh, to much fanfare. Um, not good news for St Albans Council and something we'll have to chat about. Um, last we point mention, Charlie, we won't mention Landmark's involvement defending that plan. thankfully none of us involved can i I mention two things charlie before we go i as i said i'd like next week i think it'd be topical for us two of us to take the side of the lpas and two of us from the development industry on discussing the hls what we should do with hls in the light of three Mm. to four months non-delivery and trajectory i think i think that would definitely be worth making can i also give a shout out to Kieran Rafferty, who suggested, and I completely commend him, that written reps are changed into video hearings in future. I think it's a fabulous idea. One day hearings by video, those matters which are currently dealt with by written reps. I think that's a great idea. Thanks for that, Sasha. Thanks, Kieran. Um, lots of you have asked questions. That's something like 52 questions. Clearly, we haven't got to deal with all of those. We'll, uh, if the technology permits, and I think it does, we'll try and answer as many of those as we can afterwards. Um, quite a few of you asked for details of the cases uh, uh, we've referred to. What we might do is just do a little LinkedIn post um, for those of you on LinkedIn with either links to the cases or details of them so you can look them up. Um, and please do um, use that Q&A facility or email any of us um, going forward between now and next week so that if there's any issues you'd like us to discuss um, then we can look at that and, and discuss them next week um, so it will be the same time same place uh, or same places uh, including um, Hogwarts um, stroke the Seashell Trust de- uh, book depository in Chris's case um, <laughs> Thursday the 30th of April um, five o'clock um, and uh, we hope uh, that as many as you as possible and if not more can join us then thank you very much we hope you've enjoyed it and please don't forget that link to donate to the NHS if you if you so wish I'm going to end this meeting now and um, enjoy the rest of your uh, gins and, and wines have a great evening everyone cheers cheers bye cheers bye see ya well that was the show we hope you enjoyed it if so uh, please do consider making a charity donation and if you want to watch us as well as listen the show is broadcast live at 5pm on a Thursday and it's also available afterwards to view on our YouTube channel Thanks very much to our producer and IT guru, Rob Newbury of Blue Bear IT. Music was provided with the permission of the Ruby Tuesdays.